Hello, hello, hello. Did you miss us? You can say it. It's us. I know you did. It's Team Vintage Sand, inclusive being the fabulous John Meyer, sailor to the nice people, Johnny. Hello, people. And Minnesota Mike Edmund, the man, the legend. Hello, people. See? It's that kind of enthusiasm that's gotten him where he is. <laughs> exactly. It's been right. a long day. Don't expect originality from Son me. of a bitch stole my line. So there you go. We are back for uh, episode 41 of Vintage Sand, your film history podcast, the film history podcast. I am hoping uh, that it is for you. Uh, it's been about a month since last we met, which is sort of right on schedule. And our goal here, we've often done sort of bookend episodes to other episodes that we've done. So our goal here is to create a bookend episode to episode 31, which we called The Final Countdown, wherein we talked about the the really interesting idea that so many great directors had really crappy final films. Um, you know, Ford and Hawks and Hitchcock, although family plot's not too bad. Uh, but and we talked about some of our favorite last films by directors, both directors who knew that it was going to be their last film, a la John Huston in the Dead, and directors who did not know it was going to be their last film. Max Ophuls comes to mind. So today, we present to you episode 41, entitled, not too subtly, Gala Premieres, our favorite first films by great directors. Now, I know what you're thinking. So let's let's jump ahead of you there. All right. First of all, to limit the field, we have what I call the Julie Dash rule. All right. So we try to restrict it to folks who went on to long careers in feature films. And the fact, kind of. All right. Listen, no one's watching us. The you FCC, always break the rules, so don't worry. FCC is rules are for lesser people. You know. <laughs> well, like, I, I certainly am. <laughs> so no uh, argument. So people like Julie Dash, you know, and you know the whole idea of why she hasn't been able to make another film since Daughters of the Dust is is just you know a frick, one of Hollywood's great tragedies. So people like Julie Dash, Kim Pierce. Uh, Carl Franklin, Barbara Loden, who died after her one great film, Wanda. Charles Lawton, you know, who only did one film. We talked about him in our one-hit wonders with Night of the Hunter. And it's so interesting how many of the folks I just mentioned are women or people of color or both, just saying. So those folks are technically not eligible for this. We wanted to try to avoid directors that we've talked about at great length. So, you know, I I mean, no one wants to do The Pleasure Garden anyway. Have you guys ever seen Hitchcock's uh, The Pleasure Garden first film? I don't think so. Some Uh, really good scenes. Really good scenes. But I remember. Otherwise, not much. And most importantly, some were just so obvious that we're sort of preemptively taking them off the table. Citizen Kane leaps to mind, obviously. Yes. Maltese Falcon. Uh, Twelve. I put Twelve Angry Men on the list. Is that? Oh, you're doing Twelve Angry. Twelve Angry Men is now officially back in because John's doing it. All right. Uh, Four hundred blows. Four hundred blows is off, as well as Breathless. Yeah. Um, Badlands. Uh, Boys in the Hood and uh, Reservoir Dogs. Did anyone do Reservoir Dogs? Good. Okay. No, no, no. So I mean, those that's are just been, that's been talked about. Enough. Right. So there's those are just we did a whole episode on Tarantino episode fourteen when Hollywood came out. So um, that being said, um, how far back are you going? What's the uh, what the what's the furthest back you have? Fifty seven is as far as. 
that's 60, for my top three yeah 66 all right so we're gonna do our top three I go back to 1940 um, so it's a nice it sounds like a nice range and you know hopefully uh, you know a couple of these are ones are any of these films that you discovered you know in your film going lifetime like you went to, like Reservoir Dogs when you went to see that or she's got to have it you know you go to see something like that and you're like oh my god here's this new voice are yours yet? One, uh, uh, actually, all of them to a degree. Good. Yeah. That they're so it's sort of organic that way. John, how about you? Well, yeah, one of them definitely. Um, but the other two, no, yeah, the yes, one of them, another one, yes, but uh, Twelve Angry Men, no, because I saw it on TV and it or when it was, you know, when it came out, I was only right. You were too. A little kid. I was three years old. Yeah. So precocious, <laughs> but not that precocious. Um, yeah, Mike was that precocious. Yes, that's what they always said. Um, and so this, I mean, there is very little more exciting uh, than going to going to the movies and seeing a work by a new director and just being completely blown, uh, yeah. you know, and, and blown out of your mind and seeing, oh my God, here is this fabulous new voice. I haven't come close to that in a while. I was no. thinking. Although well, that's why some of the so-called one-hit wonders that we talked about—it's really kind of disappointing because they really, like Kim Pierce, for example. Right. I, I was really hoping, boy, I I want to see the next movie. The last person I felt that way about was Olivia Wilde, and uh, with yeah. with Booksmart, and I I didn't I didn't hate. Don't worry, darling. I, I did. I, 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 yeah, I know. I didn't think it was well. Maybe I was just looking at Florence Pugh the whole time. So she you was can't very go by good, my but judgment. I hated, I hated the movie. Yeah, it was like a semi-decent Black Mirror episode, uh, and it actually borrows "quote unquote" from a couple well, from a really good Black Mirror. Doesn't mean she's episode. not going to make another good movie. Yeah, so, so I mean, she that not was, as bad as Amsterdam. Uh, oh, I didn't even was it? Wow. You know, I hate to say it because the directors are our heroes, but it couldn't happen to a nicer guy from what I've heard of David O. Russell. Mm. So, okay. No comment. Just goes goes to show that having the bet, I mean, that cast is spectacular and, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Apparently everything. Because it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge box office failure. So here we go. Well, it should be. So today we are going to talk about our top three, given the rules uh, heretofore mentioned. uh, Our top three Favorite first films by directors we love. Michael, you want to start? Okay, I'm going to start with American Beauty, Sam Mendes. Uh, he wasn't exactly a rookie director. Sure, theater. He did. He was the uh, creative director of the Damar Warehouse. And by the time he did American Beauty, he had already won his uh, first Tony Award uh, for the Studio 54 revival of Cabaret. Oh my God, the Alan Cumming. The Alan oh, Cumming, Miranda Richardson, and having seen the original with Joel Gray and Lottie Lanya, I can actually say the, the revival was better. Mm. Um, he, uh, Steven Spielberg was the executive producer, and he'd already had offered the job to Mike Nichols and Robertson Metrics, both turned it down. The script by Alan Ball had been going around Hollywood for years. Do you want the plot or should I? No, I no. Mean, I mean, that's, that's okay. an Oscar winning film. So yeah. I think folks know it. Uh, but it was already a film that was getting good buzz by the time it opened. I wasn't that shocked when I liked it as much as I did, but I really did like it. I mean, I remember seeing it at the theater, God, at least four times before it won its Oscars. 
It uh, beat a lot of good films in 99 for Best Picture. Though. Did it? No, it didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, films like Matrix and... Matrix Mag- wasn't nominated. Magnolia? Magnolia wasn't nominated. Uh, well, that just says, that's, that, yeah, that it, says everything it, it, it right there. It was the Cider House Rules, <laughs> uh, the Green Mile. Good night, you princes of might. I, I don't even remember the <laughs> other two, but it was e- I was stunned because there were some really good movies that yeah, year. Yeah, 99 uh, was a good year, as we uh, know. New York Critics gave it to um, Topsy Turvy, which I thought was the best movie Loved it. of 1999. And, uh, Big Mike Lee fans here. Another one that John is going to talk about from 1999 as well. Um, so, but does, would you say that Mendes has a, I mean, a brilliant director, but does he have a voice, a style? I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting because his next movie that's coming out of Christmas is a, a one that um, he wrote the screenplay for. It's an original oh, screenplay. Wow. That's and, new. And I hope, did I write it down? And I did not write it down with the movie. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, yes, Empire of Light. It's hmm. with Olivia Colman and um, uh, uh, Colin Firth. Oh, it's okay. It's about a movie theater in the early 1960s and how it affected pe- two people. Nice. And uh, I think it, I think it's... Uh, I His subsequent films I have not liked as much. Skyfall? Except, oddly enough, I did and like Skyfall. And I know Skyfall. you're not a Bond fan. But and I Bond did and... really like Skyfall. Now, no, I understand I the other Bond movie he directed wasn't Oh, my wasn't God, good, Spectre was which hellacious, I hellaciously bad. Not just, not, not just mm-hmm. so-so. And 1917, being the World War I fan that I am, I was looking forward to it for an entire year, and it was fine, but it was I just I fine. liked it. You liked it more than I did. Yeah, I, it I didn't was, care well, for the, it. It never allowed you to get really involved with the characters, right. the way it was done. It was, I mean, technically it was astounding. Right. But... But they're moving, they're moving, and then they run into a famous British actor and yeah, does a cameo. Yeah, and always took, and you, out. took and you out of the movie all the time. Oh, and it's so-and-so. Oh, oh it's Benedict it's, Cumberbatch. Oh, oh, it's Moriarty from oh. Sherlock. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, no. I did like Revolutionary Road with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Winslet being reunited after the Titanic. Um, and didn't... Um, very did, well acted. I mean, he's, he's, really, he's good with that. He's very good with that. Didn't he direct the Tom Hanks, Paul Newman... Yes, The Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition, yeah. Yeah, 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 also. Uh, yeah, I thought Newman, that was his last live-action movie, and I thought he acquitted himself well. But um, so what's so what uh, um, what hooks you so much about American Beauty? I like Beauty Road to Perdition. I just never fully bought Tom Hanks as yeah. a hitman. Right. It was kind of hard to swallow. Beautiful looking film though. Yes. Oh rain. yeah. Really, really, really. Oh yeah. Very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, very very well edited. I mean, technically, it was really really well made. It had some really good bits in it. It, it just had some bad, uh, draggy bits too. Yeah. And Jude Law kind of just shows up there. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is a story. Yeah, it was the. It was just when you know this guy, middle aged, wants to chuck his job, which is boring, and uh, you know, date a teenager, which maybe not. <laughs> now that we know a little more about, about Kevin Spacey, Spacey, yes, exactly. I don't want to. I don't want because I've seen some critics saying it's not as good because of what we know about Kevin Spacey. Now. No, that's, that, that's, that's total nonsense. No, we, and I, we, I really, I just want to yell at them. Are you still mad at Ingrid Bergman? Right, love us or hate <laughs> us, we try to separate artist from art here at yeah. Fifty Sand. So uh, possibly a controversial um, stand, but what can you do? I, I thought the cast was splendid. I mean, really, really. Yeah, Chris good. Cooper was great. I remember. Chris Cooper was great. Yeah, every, Janney everybody. was great. Um, uh, Wes Bentley, who I guess is on that 
TV show Yellowstone, Yellowstone yeah. which I've heard. He's a really great. slimy lawyer. Yeah, but I hear the whole thing is very. Uh, the it's MAGA, a bit of a the MAGA people. It's, supposedly it's a bit like of a it. soap opera. Yeah, um, uh, but everybody in it was good. I thought um, the, the score, and I forgot to write who had uh, written the score. Cinematography, Conrad Hall, his oh. second to last film. <laughs> Don't get any better than that. Yeah. And um, great story. It yeah. was. A, it, it, it really. And I watched it a couple of weeks ago. I was just going to ask: Have you seen it recently? Does it hold oh, up? Oh yeah. yeah! Oh, absolutely. I yeah. hate that ending, though. I'm not going to say what the ending. Yeah, is okay. if you don't seen. because it's kind of a surprise. But yeah, no, I uh, I'm about halfway there. Anyway, that's, all right. That's... So there it is, 1999. Sam Mendes in American Beauty. Um, I'm going to go next, and I'm going back to 1940 with mine. To you know, it's funny. We're going to talk later, of course, about the passing of Jean-Luc Godard, um, who you could argue had the greatest intense period of creation. Perhaps by any filmmaker, you know, from 1960 in Breathless to 1967 in Weekend, when he kind of dropped off the map, he did 14 films, some of which are absolute classics. Even the, the not-so-good ones are, are amazing and thought-provoking, and seven years, 14 films. The only other person I can think of, maybe if you count Val Luton and his unit at RKO doing those amazing horror films in a four-year period, but the only other person that I can put in that class of this intense creative productivity is Preston Sturgis, who, from 1940 to 1945, produced seven or eight of the funniest films of that period, and, you know, someone with no directing experience, someone who three years before Billy Wilder did it, and Charles Brackett, said to Paramount, you know, I will... He had written several successful scripts, including, by the way, The Power and the Glory. Citizen Kane fans, check that one out. I think Wells might have seen it. Um, had written several successful films and hated what directors were doing and refused to re-up with Paramount and they less, unless they let him direct. And, you know, they said, well, what do you know about directing? And he's like, Wilder said, I, I couldn't do any worse than those clowns. So, and, you know, so in that four-year period, he made... His first film, The Great McGinty, which I'm going to talk about a little bit. Christmas in July, which is adorable and sweet Dick Powell. The Lady Eve, which is just one of the classic screwball comedies. Um, Sullivan's Travels, which may be, along with Crimes and Misdemeanors, the greatest mix of tones ever in a Hollywood film. Mm, yeah. um, which is so hard to do. The brilliant, maybe the film that has probably moved up to being the funniest of the bunch in the critics' eyes is the Palm Beach story. We have some Mary Astor fans here, <laughs> yes I know, and uh, <laughs> Toto and uh, the Alan Quayle Club, and uh, it's brilliant. And then, just two completely anarchic comedies, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which is one of those films you look at and say, how did he get that I know. past how the censors? 1944. Or Unfaithfully Yours. Well, but and Hail the Conquering Hero was the last in that series. He then went off and became an independent, mm -hmm. worked for Howard Hughes, and always, if you see Great McGinty or any of the films I just mentioned, you will notice his love of slapstick. And unfortunately, for all concerned, he tried to revive Harold Lloyd's career. That was his first independent film uh -huh. with The Sin of Harold Diddlebach in 47, which
which yeah. he made for Howard Hughes, which was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. He made Unfaithfully Yours, which was which was funny. And oh, then, I think it's great. And his career just absolutely died after that. But what I love about the great McGinty, it's his it's his usual cast plus Akim Tamarov playing the boss. It's about a bum who ends up becoming governor of a state. There's a great framing device in a, in a bar in a unnamed Latin American country. But what I love about this film is that it sort of very cheekily takes for granted that there is absolutely nothing but corruption yeah. and 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 malfeasance at the heart of our political system. I mean, it takes place in a very heartland kind of town, and the first thing we see McGinty doing is voting in the mayoral election 37 times because he gets paid every time he does I it. I love that he's pulling out the, the pieces of paper to prove that he... Right, the little tabs. He keeps saying William Demarest, you know, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Slowburn, who's in all of those Sturgis films, is great. I just, I just was shocked at how frank it is about that, and no one said anything. No one said, hey, you can't show this. The best thing, of course, Akim Tamarov, you know, playing a Russian immigrant who runs the political party, yeah, asks McGinty if he wants to become the reform mayor, and McGinty says, "How can I be the reform mayor?" And and Akim Tamarov says, "Well, I run the reform party also." <laughs> he, say, he says, "You think I'm going to let a political change of party influence my business?" Yeah. So, and I mean, you know, it's just for a film that's made 80 years ago, it's just shocking how much it's 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 how modern it is. It's not. As out and out funny as Palm Beach Story or Morgan's Creek or Hail the Concrete Hero. I don't well, think because it also it has a serious undertone and it, and it has heart. Right, and I, I and I, and you know he eventually sort of you know not to give too much away, but he eventually you know sees the error of his ways thanks to uh, the woman he we marries for convenience when he's running for mayor and they become close and da 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 da. So I just <laughs> but it's bracing. It's just like yeah. how did how did they let this through? I mean, just absolutely. Because they probably didn't get it. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm hoping. It's like duck soup. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But interestingly, duck soup, you know, for you know, for its place in the pantheon now, was a failure when it came out, as we've noted in these pages before. McGinty did all right. You know, it didn't make a ton of money, but it certainly made a profit. And Sturgis went on in this five-year period to create these, you know, one masterpiece after another for uh, for Paramount. So my, I'm not, I'm not going in any order, particularly more chronological. So uh, third on my list, though, is 1940. <laughs> Uh, it's a little hard to track down, but not impossible. Um, uh, the Great McGinty, Preston Sturges. Check it out. Great performances. Brilliant. Way ahead of its time script. Yes. So no. My first movie is The Landlord. Yes. Well, released Ashby, in Ashby, yes. Released in 1970, the directorial debut of Hal Ashby, who went on to direct Harold and Maud, The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound yeah. for Glory, Coming Home, and Being There. And yet it's totally forgotten with those 70s, yeah, I know. When, uh, I know. when the great 70s yeah. directors are going uh, Ashby was, was a film editor, so he definitely, he knew how to make a movie. Uh, knew how to put everything together, construct it, and cinematography by Gordon Willis. I mean, <laughs> the was there a better cinematographer in the 1970s than Gordon Willis? Straight answer, no. No. <laughs> Period. Uh, Bo Bridges, <laughs> Lee Grant, Diana Sands, uh, so little of Diana Sands, so yeah. sad. Pearl Bailey, Walter Brook, Louis Gossett Jr., uh, Mark Bay, Melvin Stewart, Susan Onspach, and Will, Will McKenzie, they're all excellent in it. Um, so the, the plot is that 
Bo Bridges, who comes from a very wealthy family, decides to buy a house, a large build, a small building that was originally a house, and turn it into a luxury building for himself. But as he gets to know the tenants in the building, he decides to become their landlord. And it's a black neighborhood, so right away you have this... Park Slope. It's the old park it's, Yeah, originally it's, originally yeah. it's Park Slope. Pre-gentrification so, Park so Slope. It's, that's a, right. So it's dealing with race relations and gentrification and also colorism within the black community. Uh, he becomes involved with a dancer in the neighborhood and has an affair with one of his tenants. Um, it's a comedy, but there are definitely some scenes that are more dramatic. Uh, so you've got that mixture. There's that scene between Lee Grant and Pearl Bailey oh that I God. just... I love I that think it's scene. I think it's Lee Grant's best performance. Oh, she's great in it. She yeah. got an Oscar she's nomination. Really great in it. The film's really only, great. And I just absolutely love her in yeah. that movie. Uh, it didn't do great at the box office, no. of course. But uh, you know, ahead of its time. Yeah, yes, I think absolutely. so. Well, I don't know so much ahead of its time as much as, like, I mean, it deals with issues that people are like, oh, I don't want to go to the movies to, to, to think about this. Hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, okay, it's a comedy, but it's making me think too much. I absolutely love this movie. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the issues that come up in this movie are still very still relevant. relevant. But, but, you know, you do that, said that list, John. I mean, Ashby didn't do a bad film in the 70s. He, I mean, there's not, not one of those. Not a bad film, no. There's no, some, there's some like that are much. better than others. I like Bound for Glory, which yeah. is probably the least well-known of Actually, that. my favorite is Shampoo. Which I love I Shampoo. somehow missed talking about during our 70s. I, I think his best movie is Less Detail. I like Less Detail Can't argue with that too. either. Yep. Although it's, I mean, it's kind of a downer, mm-hmm. but it's, but I think it's his best well, movie. Well, and the tragedy of Ashby is, you know, that his films in the, um, um, in the 80s were just not very good yeah. and he had a terrible drug yeah. problem, I understand. Oh, yeah, and, but, and it became sort of a cycle. It was like, there were some things that were like rumors started going around about, about the drug problem and maybe it wasn't as bad as it was and then people wouldn't give him work and then the drug problem became worse and you just had this endless cycle that just, you know, spiraled down and... And he died way too young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, but, I mean, his those films of the 70s are as good as anyone's output, almost anyone's output in yeah. the 70s. Yeah, and they've, they've aged well. And, you yeah. know, the, the new the new Being wave. there in particular. Yes. Yeah. Really <laughs> aged well. Being there. You well. like to watch. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact that he, you know, it's always the new wave directors and then Altman. And Ashby, as you said, because Ashby worked as an editor in the 60s and He won before. the Academy Award for In the Heat of the Night. For Heat of the Night, yeah. right. So, yeah. and he, he was more of Altman's generation, but doesn't get treated with the oh, he, same... Well, he worked with some of the so-called, you know, classic Hollywood directors. Uh, he, was, he was around for quite a while before becoming a director. Yeah, and so gets lost in the shuffle, but all of those films looking at The Landlord is a, is a great choice, wow. John. It's a, Excellent. It's a really good I, I, If you hadn't done it, I might have done it. I, I thought No higher praise. <laughs> well, no, I just... I am honored. <laughs> Let me put it this way. I crossed it off my list when... Ah, uh... uh, I see. You come and do my podcast, but you don't do it with respect. Yeah. <laughs> Bonus era. All right, Mikey. What's, your, next what's your second? is someone who is currently working today, and she only has four films to her name, but it's the Canadian actress Sarah Polly. Oh, sure. And uh, her first film was Away From Her. And uh, did, you, you, did you see it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because it, it deals with Alzheimer's. It's from the uh, 
short story, The Bear Came Over the Mountain by uh, Alice Munro. Mm. Can't do better than that. And it deals with a woman who is coming down with Alzheimer's, and her husband is wanting to support her, puts her in an institution, and she falls for someone else in the institution. Right. She takes care of him, and then when he is removed because his wife can't afford it, she goes to pieces. And I was terribly moved by it, and now you guys are going to say, oh, it's because of the, I love Julie Christie. <laughs> that is part of it. I wasn't sure. <laughs> this is the reason she has that career that she has. Yes, She's damn true. good. She won, except for the Academy Award, she won every major Award in the book. Uh, sang. Who, who won that year? Do you remember? Marianne Cotillard won the Oscar. Okay. And I wasn't oh, that for, surprised. Oh, uh, the PF film? Yes. Yeah. And I wasn't that surprised because actually, Christie is not the engine that drives this movie. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's, um, yeah. uh, and I have his name down here. <laughs> um, Fact checker. Yeah. Alzheimer's, right? <laughs> Ooh. Not Ooh. funny, John. <laughs> uh, too soon? <laughs> Not funny, but I'm... I'm, I'm oh, wow. oh, there he is. We'll fix it in post. Uh, Gordon Pinsent, the Canadian actor who plays the husband, and he is the person who really runs... I've never seen him in anything. I haven't yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think strictly, I think he's a Canadian stage and television actor. I did look him up. Oh, okay. He hasn't done that. Well, he doesn't do any films that I've ever heard of. And uh, it, the film was moderately successful. Uh, uh, Miss Polly uh, won a uh, screenplay nomination at that, at that screenplay and lost to the Coen brothers for No Country. For, for No Man. Country. Yeah, no, no shame in that. Um, and since then she has made uh, two other, three other films. Uh, one of them was... Um, and she's directed also for television. Right. Her other films was Take This Waltz, a dramedy with Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen and Sarah Silverman, which did, I saw... Did not see it. It's okay. And then a documentary about her own family called Stories We Tell. Hmm. And that one really knocked it out of the park. It got uh, the New York Film Critics and National Board of Review for Best Nonfiction Film. It's about her family. Uh. And apparently, in the course of studying her family, she finds out that her father's not her father. Oh. And she meets her real Zoinks. father. Wow. Her mother died at 12. She comes from a rather theatrical family. Her mother was a, a, a famed Canadian uh, TV actress. And in the, in the course of this, she finds out that, um, yeah, her um, father wasn't her father. People who don't know who Sarah Polly is, she... You've seen her, uh, possibly in the Sweet Hereafter, right. Exotica. She worked yeah. extensively for Adam McGoyan, who was executive producer of uh, Stories We Tell, uh -huh. and also um, in Go, which is one of my favorite movies of the nineties. Oh D yeah, I like that movie. Doug Liman's film. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I yeah. like that movie. I haven't seen that since it came out. I so maybe she's really good. She's yeah. really, really good in it. She basically gave up acting in 2010. She just wanted to concentrate on film. And she has one coming out in December. That seems to be my favorite line now. Well, listen, this uh, my next director's got one then, too. So. Uh, it's called Women Talking. And it stars Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, and Frances McDormand, who also produced 
It's a story about eight women in an isolated religious community and how they grapple uh, their reality from their faith. And I think they're Mennonites. Interesting. And uh, it's been getting very good buzz in the in the film festivals that it's been playing. Can't beat the cast. Um, so anyway, that is my uh, second movie. Uh, you can get it on Tubi TV, which is free. Hmm. But it's not on any of the major streaming services. No. Right now, no. Oh, you By the annoying. You can't uh, stream it anywhere. Uh, on Tubi TV, which you can't stream. Oh, okay. But it's not go. available on Amazon. So not it's on it's on to be, but not not to be. Also, I meant, <laughs> forgot to mention. Be has to be. I also forgot to mention that American Beauty is on Prime Video. Oh, sweet. All right, very good. Yeah. All right, so Sarah Polly, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, that. uh, she's definitely. I I think it's really really well done, but boy, oh, it's so sad. Oh my god. <laughs> It's sad, but it's—I don't think it's a weepy. Right, it's not a more no, sad. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, I—I I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, it's not. You don't come out of there thinking. Oh. Well, yeah, you do. But I didn't. But it, and what was the Julianne Moore one from uh, the last decade that was an Alzheimer's film? Oh, being. She won the Oscar for it. It's a very forgettable film. Yeah. <laughs> no irony there. Yes, irony is our middle name here at Vintage Sand. Alec Baldwin played her husband, but I don't remember the name of You're the movie. so interesting. Well, all right, we're just going to leave it there because Not that's... every Alzheimer's, most Alzheimer's, actually I've only liked two movies that have dealt with Alzheimer's. That's one and the other one is uh, The Father. All right. Uh, I am also, for my second one, doing a director who is uh, still working today, possibly one of the most polarizing filmmakers uh, on the American scene, and that would be Darren Aronofsky. And I have a really distinct memory in 1998 of going to see Pi and just being absolutely blown away by it. And I think, you know, listen, Aronofsky has made, Requiem for a Dream is a masterpiece. It's unwatchable, but it's a masterpiece. The last 20 minutes of The Fountain, even it's crappy films like The Fountain, but the last 20 minutes of it with the special, with the effects, Oh my God! Are are among the most beautiful. When I showed that to my film classes, they this kids applaud. Really? Especially because those effects were not done with CGI. They were done with this guy. He found this guy who does films, chemical reactions at the microscopic level, and that became the background for Hugh Jackman's ascension to the the cradle of all things. And it's extraordinary. The Wrestler is. It's fine. It's a good, you know, it's his straight story. You know, it's his it's his attempt to show that he could do a normal narrative film like everybody else. I love Black Swan. I love, I love Black Swan. I think Black Swan's really, really I do good. T- I, I, and, I, and I love Noah. I'm sorry. I am you very, Noah. I'm very much alone in that, but the, that he sets Noah up. You know, Aronofsky's Judaism is something that runs through all of his films, and we'll talk, as, of course, in Pi. Um, and... Uh, he sets up, and Russell Crowe is up to this as an actor. Noah is somebody who loves all living creatures and loves humanity, and yet is asked by the one force he loves more than that, God, to be sort of the agent or representative of the destruction of everything that he loves. And the tension between his love of God and his love of everything that's going to be destroyed in the flood, you know, gives this a real, I mean, and 
Aronofsky digs into biblical and Talmudic and other religious apocryphal texts. I, I really like the movie. I was surprised by how much. Mother, you can keep. Um, you know, Mother was like, get it? It's an allegory about... And Jennifer Lawrence is like Mother Earth. Oddly enough, I think Mother's my favorite of his films. I have never it's, seen... I've not seen Pi. Um, Pi is... is I mean, it, oh, you didn't watch it before our episode? No. I, I Shame on no you. No Pi for you. <laughs> I didn't know we had to watch you each like other's... <laughs> Do you like a pie? (laughs) We have to do a whole episode on defending your life. We absolutely do. Um, But, uh, and of course, he's got, The Whale is coming out, um, uh, which... uh, Which I've heard terrible things about. Oh, I don't know. Except for his performance. I've heard he's great, and you said the play was okay. I liked the play. I liked it. Yeah. And uh, about a 600-pound man and sort of, you know, what, what his reaction to that is. I mean, Aronofsky's films are always about outsiders, whether they're, you know, the uh, the mathematician uh, Max in Pi or the drug users, you know, Jared Leto and Marlon Wayans in, and Jennifer Connelly in Requiem. But um, Pi is... Um, I just thought, my God, what a powerful and original voice when this came out. And whether he has succeeded or failed since then, his ambitions have never disappointed. He always aims very high. And I appreciate that in a time when everyone seems to be throwing out lowest common denominator kind of films. No argument from you there. So, I mean, you know, first of all, and also two important collaborators that have gone on to work with many other people, Matthew Libatique is the uh, cinematographer. He did um, uh, Don't Worry Darling for... um, for Olivia Wilde and Clint Mansell did the score which is amazing and very much a setup for his next score which was for Aronofsky's Requiem which is one of the most influential scores of the last 20 years with the Kronos Quartet it's amazing so and it's very basically the plot it's told black and white he also invents what he called hip hop ending this very jump cut the character Max is a genius mathematician afflicted with headaches and so every time he gets one of those headaches you have those little two second, you know, cuts with him popping the aspirin and the boom, 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 which he does later with a heroin uh, shooting up in Requiem. But that was a whole new way to edit that no one had ever really done before. And so he's working on figuring his idea is an old one, but a brilliant one that all of nature, all of life can be expressed through mathematics. And that if it can be expressed through mathematics, patterns can be found and thus prediction is possible. And he's built this incredible supercomputer. It fries itself, but not before spitting out this 216-digit number that may or may not be the uh, the key to to predicting the stock market, but also the best part of, uh, of my favorite part of the movie, and where Aronofsky brings his Jewish Brooklyn background in, is he's interacting with the Kabbalists, you know, the Hasidic Jews who believe, because... Um, the Hebrews used gematria, you know, their letters were numbers. And right. so there are people since the beginning of Judaism, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, who've been studying the Torah as though it were a code that can be decoded and patterns detected. And the holiest of holies in Judaism is that no one except the high priest before the temple was destroyed knows the unspeakable name of God. And it's possible that the unspeakable name of God, which will herald in the messianic age, if it's discovered is buried in this 216 digit number that um 
that Euclid, his computer spit, spits out. But it's so much more about, it's about the mood, the black and white cinematography, very high contrast, beautifully shot. Um, the, the sense of paranoia he's able to convey just with the elements of film. And, you know, the plot gets a little nonsensical at the end, especially towards the end. Although we do get, um, are you guys Breaking Bad fans? I forget. I've never watched oh, it. Oh, okay. I've, because I've, we watched, get, I've watched some of it. I haven't the watched guy, the entire thing yet. The guy who plays his professor, the one who he plays Go with yes, in yeah. Pi, Mark Margolis, <laughs> is uh, Don Hector Salamanca in yeah. um, in Breaking Bad. So it's I nice to see yeah. Don Hector. And so it's not, a, it's not a film without flaws, but I've never seen anything like it before. And for better and for worse... Aronofsky keeps trying to push that well, envelope. Just the present, the premise itself is very original. Right. I mean, and like, where did you come up with that? <laughs> I mean, except for the wrestler, he is, uh, and I think the wrestler is a deliberate step into back into conventional picture making. Yeah. I mean, I, when the wrestler came out, I was like, "This is the Wally Beery picture that Barton Fink was writing." You know, when he got interrupted. Well, it's like Orson so. Welles making The Stranger. Right. Ex- exactly. So like, see, exactly. I can Great. do it too. Or as I said, David Lynch making The Straight Story, yeah. which is actually a beautiful movie, but just proving, yeah, I can tell a, a story from A to B to C if I want to. I just don't want to. Yeah. So he has, you know, people love him, people hate him, but you cannot deny that he continues twenty plus years later to be one of our most ambitious filmmakers. And I'm going to see The Whale on opening day. That well, I intend to see Yeah, Aronofsky's review proof for me ever since Pi, so I'm going to that one. John O. All right, my second film is Being John Malkovich. Yes. yes. <laughs> Released in 1999, directed by Spike Jones and written by Charlie Kaufman. It was Woo! the feature film debut for both a director and screenwriter. With John Cusack, Cameron Diaz, Catherine Keener, Orson Bean, and of course, John Malkovich. <laughs> As to where he came up with this... <laughs> Utterly original. I mean, I mean right Crazy. away, okay, John, John Cusack plays an unemployed puppeteer. As soon as you, you find that out in the beginning, you know that you're seeing something you have not seen before. <laughs> Married to Cameron Diaz, who is obsessed with her many pets. She basically has a small zoo in her home. (laughs) A menagerie. Yes. Uh, Cusack needs to find some sort of work because he's an unemployed puppeteer. Um, And he finds work as a file clerk for an eccentric scientist, played by Orson Bean, on the seventh and a half floor. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And that floor is... What maybe you have to five, skip over a little maybe bit. five yeah. feet? <laughs> um, and while working working there, Cusack discovers a small hidden door as he's trying to find a paper that papers that fell behind a cabinet. He crawls through it into a tunnel and finds himself inside the mind of John Malkovich. <laughs> Cusack tells his coworker, played by Catherine Keener, who he immediately has his big big crush on. And she realizes they can sell the experience for profit. And they start, you know, $200 a pop. You can live inside John Malkovich for 15 minutes and then get and spit then out get, along oh, the, the Jersey, Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> um, from there, it just gets wilder and wilder. I, I, I don't want to say too much more about the plot because I'll ruin it for oh, anyone. Yeah. I, I mean, but it's an audacious movie. Nothing like totally um, or utterly original. Supposedly, when they were trying to... You know, get it made, pitching at uh, numerous studios. One uh, <laughs> studio executive said, 
why the fuck can't it be being Tom Cruise? Yeah, exactly. Oh, because they did wanted... you really just say that in front of Michael? Are you trying to like give him an embolism? Because, because they wanted they want us like why John Malkovich? Why can't we have like you know one of the big movie stars kind of thing? Oh my god! But um, one one of the big themes that's in this movie is uh, there's a psychologist Abraham Mas- Maslow. Maslow. Sure. You put forth an important and somewhat controversial theory called self-actualization. And he recreated sort of a, a pyramid called the hierarchy of needs. And values, too. And, yep. yep. And um, you can see the different characters working through this, through the pyramid. And the steps involve caring for yourself, which is the basic things like health, food, and shelter. Uh, becoming part of a group, meaning family, friends, colleagues. And tending to yourself mentally respect and self-esteem and part of that sometimes with an artist means being able to pursue your your passion and you see the different characters working their way through the stages but not always in an admirable way Mm -hmm. and through that expression of that theme we see the major motifs of the movie which is perspective and point of view right and um, it's extraordinary. I mean, talk about a voice and why. That... And it never, and it never really, even though it gets darker and darker, it never loses its humor. No, no and 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 it just, you just want to kill him. I mean, you know, yeah. I, know, yeah. I know that Jones is independent. I know his family's very wealthy. He's he can do whatever he well, wants. That I didn't know. Yes, that, very, that explains a lot. He's only made four films. This and bastard. What are they, what are they... Yeah, because that's what I was I was going to talk about was the fact about what what he's made since then. And uh, I mean, he did adaptation. With right. Charlie Kaufman, which is quite good, but then he he did a lot of producer on like these jackass movies, yeah, and it was also he also well, wrote s- wrote so some of those, and uh, then he did the Wild Things Are, which and then I did, loved, and then he did and he did her in 2013. Which that's is the her. last. I like yeah, that. Yeah, he was on my top ten of the team. Yeah, that's, but that's yeah. the last movie he's directed because yep. he's been involved with these. He does whatever he wants when he stuff. Yeah. And well, because remember, he came up through MTV. He directed some of the great, yes. great videos yeah. of the 90s, like uh, uh, Buddy Holly for Weezer and um, uh, Sabotage for the Beastie Boys. I mean, just a really innovative director. And maybe yeah. the best of the, along with Fincher, the best of the directors that went from making videos to feature films. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm hoping that maybe he'll still come out with another really good movie. Well, he's relatively, what, he's in his 50s? Uh, he's not an elderly man. No, but he, why is he only being four or five? He's I 53. I want 53 more. Is, yeah. Come yeah. on, Spike, if you're listening, and we know you are, because we're really getting up there in the numbers. Yeah. You know, give us another feature film. Come on. Just for Vintage Sam. Yeah. Please. Seriously. With sugar on top. Yeah, because, you know, Kaufman as a director is not great. I mean, you know, Synecdoche yeah. is extremely ambitious, and uh, I'm thinking of ending things was a fine script. Still but... haven't finished that movie. Yeah. And... <laughs> that kind of says it all. <laughs> and as we've said, the other member of that sort of triumvirate is Gondry, and after Eternal Sunshine, right. you know, his work's been very And I've tried, up and I've gone to, you know, nothing as good as... Eternal Sunshine. But boy, you were right, Jono. Did 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 that film feel like feel fresh? Like, oh my yeah. God, I've never seen. Yeah. An adaptation felt the same way too. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, like you know, it was very Fellini esque. You know, I can't make a movie, so I'm going to make a movie yeah. about not being able to make a movie. Yeah. I'm supposed to adapt this this book by Susan Orlean. I can't, so yeah. I'll give. 
I'll give myself a twin. I mean, I don't know how much of that's Kaufman, how much of it's Jones, but just incredibly um, original it's stuff. probably just the two of them working together, bouncing off ideas and going with, you and, know... I mean. And when have you seen a movie in the last handful of years that has required that much thought on your part? And I say that as, yeah. a, as, a, as a real compliment. Yeah. Not too many. No, no, I mean, absolutely. Again, and so when I talk about Aronofsky, who's a mixed bag as a director, I will acknowledge, but the ambition... Of a Spike Jones and a Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry and Darren Aronofsky and people like and that. And I should I should add too that uh, John Malkovich won the New York Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor. Well, I'm not going to give too much, but my favorite <laughs> moment, the, my favorite oh, moment in the movie though, is when Malkovich goes inside right, Malkovich. When he, goes, <laughs> when he goes inside his own head. Like that Malkovich, is Malkovich. That is worth. The I don't whole think movie. Tom Cruise would have won an award. <laughs> no, sorry. All right. Are we doing honorable mentions? Before uh, yeah, let's one? do honorable mentions. Go ahead, Mike. Okay, I'm just going to name the movies. I have a lot of them, but they're... I, a, tree grows in Brook, a Tree Grows in Brooklyn, yeah, Ilya Kazan. The Boy with Green Hair, Joseph Lozit. Sure. Room at the Top, Jack Clayton. Oh. Oh, I didn't realize that's his first movie. I didn't know that's that That's a good either. movie. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. Whistle Down the Wind, Brian Forbes. Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, Carl Reese. Knife in the Water, Roman Polanski. Yeah, that's a great one. Period of Adjustment, favorite of mine, George Roy Hill. Huh? The Sporting Life, Lindsay Anderson. Sure. The Producers, Mel Brooks. Can't argue. Rachel Rachel, Paul Newman. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, Paul Mazursky. A New Leaf, Elaine May. Elaine May. Hester Street, Joan Mankin Silver. Lumiere, Jean Moreau. Bull Durham, Ron Sheldon, Hedrick and the Angry Inch, John Cameron Mitchell, mm. Capote, Bennett Miller, and Half Nelson, Ryan Fieck. Yeah, what boy? That's the first time I ever noticed Ryan Gosling. That was an amazing performance. Wasn't it? Good film. Oh, I like that movie. All right, a lot. so I'm, I'm going back to the 20s with uh, Shannon Delu. Uh, if you count that as Buñuel's first film, although we co-directed it with Dali. And the next year, 1930, uh, Cocteau's Blood of a Poet, Song Dune Poet. If you've never seen that, it's extraordinary. Kub- I'm counting The Killing as Kubrick's first major film. He did Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire you know, that was, before that. Wasn't even, it, was, it wasn't even really a feature film. Yeah, it was kind of, but no. So I have Knife in the Water as well. Diner. Uh, diner. Um, oh, oh yeah. my God! How did I forget that? How one? did I yeah. forget um, that? I love Diner, Spinal yeah. Tap, and you know Rob Reiner. Yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Been up and down, I but that one too. and Blood Simple was well. That was was well the same year yeah. as was Stranger Than Paradise. It turns out that 1984 was like the great year mm. for first films. I mean, Jarm. I, I don't think Jarmish has done a better film than Stranger Than Paradise. I love it. She's got to have it. Spike Lee in '86, Sex Lies and Videotape gave us Soderbergh yeah, in '86. I almost did that one. Um, Hard Eight. I mean, it's not Magnolia or Boogie Nights or Master or uh, There'll Be Blood, but it's still a great introduction to uh, PTA. Yeah, or Phantom Thread. Sorry, we had to mention that. Y tu mamá también. Um, oh, which yeah. is which is uh, that's Qua- his first film. It's Quaron's first film. Oh my god, I love yep. that movie. Um, Brick, Ryan Johnson's first film, the film noir set in uh, high school, which is brilliant. Um, uh, Whiplash. You know, I'm very optimistic about Damien Chazelle. You didn't like Whiplash. No, to me, that film has a big hole in the script. Oh, well. And it just annoyed the hell out of me. I just love the performances. Um, And recently, in terms of genre stuff, um, Ex Machina, Alex Garland's 
a film with uh, Alicia Vikander and Oscar Isaac. Um, Hereditary uh, by Ari Aster, who's the only other thing he's made is Midsummer, which I love even more. That, but Hereditary is terrifying and brilliant. And finally, Get Out. And mm, I was yeah. disappointed yeah. in Nope. I really liked Us, but I think Jordan Peele is going to be a well, voice. Well, actually, Get Out, I think, is one that we said we're taking off the table. Yeah. Oh, all right. So, yeah, it's off. It, but he's but he, no, but he's a voice to be that's going to be reckoned with for a long time, I think. Well, you've both named like a bunch of movies I was going to mention, but but uh, two that I thought about doing was Say Anything, Cameron Crowe's first movie, which is a really really good romantic film, has a lot of humor in it, and The Virgin Suicide, Sofia Coppola's yes. first movie, yes, which yes, is yes. really 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 good. good. Sad as hell. Yep. Oh my god! I, mean, I think but, it's the best thing she ever did. I like it better than Lost in Translation. So. Mm. Did you see her last film? Mm. Uh, with, Bill with Bill Murray? No. It's quite good. All right. If you, do, if you have Apple TV, I which do. I don't, then watch it. Is it on Apple TV yeah. now? It always has been. It keeps what it... Oh, I thought it was... Oh, unless they've taken it off. I don't it might get it Because TV. they keep moving they movies from streaming. Oh, yes, from they streaming do. And I, it drives me crazy. TV. You know what I'm going to say here, and that's why I keep my DVDs, because you never know when something's going to disappear, and I'll need it for... For vintage sense. I, I, I got it for, as a SAG screener, that's why. All right, so your number one, Mikey. My number one, and this was the minute you said about uh, this, uh, that we were going to do first-time movies, this immediately came to mind. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's on my top 20 list. I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. And that's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I could talk about this for a long, long time. I got a lot of information from the Mark Harris book because he write, writes about it extensively. He had both uh, Sam... This is the book on Mike Nichols. On Mike yes. Nichols, yes. I've talked about it a million times and people must be sick of hearing it. Uh, no, they're squirming at home. Now. Oh, God, Michael, you're talking about that book again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They do a drinking game now. Every time we say the word Julie, Julie Christie, you have to do a shot. <laughs> we have some serious fans out there. Some serious alcoholics. <laughs> well, here. Rubbing alcohol for you, Martha? <laughs> okay, but I, I did... Um, I'm not going to relate the plot of Edward Albee's brilliant play. Um, no, but talk, you were, said you were going to talk about how Nichols opened it up and how brilliant you thought it He did it open it up, but he... Actually, Ernest Lehem, who is credited with the screenplay, <laughs> this is a stuff that people don't know. He was credited with the screenplay because he produced it. Right. I mean, first, let me go back. Uh, Jack Warner bought the film rights for half a million dollars, uh, telling Edward Albee that it was going to be Betty Davis and James Mason. I could see that. I could see Mason. I could see it. They'd have to rewrite the first few lines if Betty Davis was going to do it mm. because Betty Davis can't re reference her own movie. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, and then he hired Ernest Lehem to produce and write the screenplay. This would have been Lehem's first movie as a producer. Huh. And his good idea was to dump Betty, dump Betty Davis, sorry Betty, and hire Elizabeth Taylor. Oh. Now, at the time it was like, what are you thinking? Because she's 20 years too young for the part. But I think it really, really worked. Extraordinary. Yeah, she's great. Her and, best, and, best and, and, and yeah. Absolutely. In the meantime, um, she had become friends with Mike Nichols, and Mike Nichols and Richard Burton had become after-show drinking buddies when uh, Burton uh, was doing Camelot and Mike Nichols was doing an evening with Nichols and May. 
and he had visited them on the set of Cleopatra, so they had become close. So it was Elizabeth Taylor's idea to hire Nichols. Nichols now in the, has won two Tony Awards uh, for Love and Barefoot in the Park. He had a third hit with uh, The Odd Couple, all running at the same time on Broadway. <laughs> but Liam's bad idea was his screenplay. One of the things Liam wanted to do was to throw out the whole idea of an imaginary son. What? And make it a flashback to a son who hung himself in the closet. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. <laughs> well, that changes things a bit. It certainly does. <laughs> and basically, uh, Nichols... With we gave the, away the whole movie now. <laughs> with the help of Taylor, uh, just said no. For the most part, 95% of that of the script of that movie comes from the play. It's from all the... Yeah, I, it's I, just I, the, the, the few lines that were cut were uh, lines related to the age, because in the original play, Martha is 52 and George is 48, and George ribs her for being... He's younger. That was all cut. The other big problem was filming it in black and white. Nichols wanted it in black and white for two reasons. He thought aesthetically it worked for the film and also because of the makeup they had to put on Taylor to yeah. age her. Yeah. She'd already gained 20, 30 pounds, but they had to put on makeup. And uh, uh, Warner said, absolutely not. This I, I've spent enough money on this movie. you know. And Nichols was ready to walk away. And so Warner just gave in. It was, though, uh, Lehman's idea to open it up. And I think it really works. I yeah. think it works. Yeah. Not only does it work, it works for going into the house at the very beginning, uh, where you see what a horrible housekeeper Martha is. <laughs> well, she... I, I don't know if that's really the right. I think, I think she just doesn't do anything. Yeah. She's not a housekeeper at all. She's yeah. just... just... But I mean, she she puts a plate into a drawer, <laughs> into a bedroom. Drawer. I mean, they're both they're both slobs. Yeah, and um, but the, the, uh, there is a long, extensive scene where they had um, gone where the dancing scene, most of Act Two, is done at a roadhouse, and right. there are two extra characters. I'm not giving them their names, but it's played by the gaffer of huh. the film and his wife. Well, and I thought casting Sandy Dennis and George Siegel was perfect. Absolutely. Uh, Nichols originally wanted Redford. Redford said absolutely not. He did not want to do it. He had a um, a, a child who died in childbirth. Yeah. And he basically didn't like the play. And uh, I could definitely see him playing that part. Yeah, yeah. I can. I see, and I see why Nichols would would want to work with him. Well, yeah, he, they'd become very close to doing Barefoot in the Park, but yeah. but Redford just said, "I don't like the play." So George Siegel got it. Uh, Siegel was in a uh, off Broadway play, The Knack, that Nichols was directing. Taylor had full uh, casting approval. Right. Of both uh, 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 Nick and Honey, she liked The Knack. Then she saw Sandy Dennis in Any Wednesday. This was her second Tony Award in a row. She'd also won the Tony Award for A Thousand Clowns. She'd only made one other movie, hmm. Splendor in the Grass. Right. Yeah, she has a small part in that. And she has yeah. a small part. One of Natalie there. Wood's friends. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, all four of them are so brilliant. I, I, yeah. I just, yeah. and Taylor has ne never been better. 
In it, fact, I think Burton has been underpraised for that part. Agreed. Yeah. I, I, I think he's really just brilliant. And it. according to the book, uh, and I, you know, Samuel Steen and George Siegel were still alive, so to talk with Harris. According to the book, uh, Nichols had more problems directing Burton than he did Taylor. Because mm. Burton was not sure he could do some of this stuff, do that long monologue. Right. Interesting. Which, yeah, which, by the way, I, I, uh, I have done in... Um, as auditions? Se- no, in a, as a senior in oral interpretation, I did that scene. Nice. Which uh, bothered a few Minnesota schools. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see that. Yes. But, but you know, I saw the movie at 11. Believe it or not, and that's when I, I realized. Well, it was it I, was a big deal when it came. It out. was a huge deal, as yeah. well. It should have been. Uh, but I don't think Nichols ever lived up to it. I, I don't think even the Graduate. I don't think anything he did. Well, I was, was nothing I was as good. good. I was going to say he went up and down. Yeah, I was going to. I mean, I mentioned this before. It's such an assured movie. It's yes. just there is nothing at all about that movie in any aspect of the filmmaking that makes you feel like this is a first film, first feature yeah. film. By if anything, the Graduate feels more like a first film, more than, thrown together. Yeah. Yeah. Although yeah. the Graduate is one of the uh, was the biggest film movie of 1967. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But I know I, a lot no, of people I, I, think it's dated. I don't. I happen to like it a lot. He had. Peaks and valleys yeah. in his career. He did uh, yeah, twenty-one well, directors do that make right. a lot of movies. He had twenty-one films he made. Yeah, and I've I've seen them all except for um, what planet are you from? I somehow yeah, missed that, miss one. that one. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, among his uh, peaks, uh, I thought were um, Angels in America, which is yeah. as good a movie as could have been made from that. True, day. and I think Wit. Which he also made for HBO is actually superior to the play. That won the Pulitzer Prize. I happen to love Postcards from the Edge. Working Girl. Working Girl, I, I liked. Love I didn't working love Working Girl. There, I, I like. I like I Postcards like. from the Edge a lot. Postcards yeah, from the Edge, I think, sharp. is one of his. Uh, I enjoyed the two f- uh, films that he made with Elaine May uh, as a writer: uh, The Birdcage and yep. Primary Colors. Primary Colors far superior to that awful book. It's yes. aged well, too. And it's aged well. Whereas Carnal Knowledge, for example, which seems so daring, yeah. has Yeah, I went to see it again uh, at the it's, film forum. It's uneven. It's uneven. Yeah, Parts of it I like. There's some beautiful scenes in it, uh, and some really good acting, and some scenes just make you cringe. Now, I've got to give you a little piece of trivia to wrap things up. All okay. right. Oh, by the way, it was the third highest grossing movie of 1966 after Thunderball... And Dr. Zhivago. Yeah, that makes sense. But who, who was that woman who starred in Dr. Zhivago again? Lift <laughs> <laughs> your glasses. glasses. your glasses. You ready? Julie Christie. <laughs> and down. <laughs> okay. When the filming was complete, Jack Warner fired Mike Nichols. He didn't want him in the studio anymore. Oh, so he wasn't involved with any with the editing, the post. He was involved. Because he was on the phone every night to Sam O'Steen. Ah, okay. <laughs> and then he made a deal with Warner. Let me back onto the set and let me help finish editing the film. And I will assure you a very good grade from the uh, National Catholic Office for Motion Pictures. Because they yeah. were instrumental in yeah. the rating system. There were two rating yeah. systems. Sure. And he said he had a very, very close friend. 
who would uh, come to the screening with all the people who rate the movies, cardinals and whatever, and she would say yeah, how great it was a movie. basically a bunch of priests yeah. and nuns. But this, this particular person who Nichols... It was rumored that he was dating her. He really wasn't, but he was a close friend of this person. Would... Um, influenced the cardinals and uh, the old priest. And uh, so he got Jackie Kennedy to come to the screening, and she did exactly that. She said, what a wonderful film. Jack would have loved it. Nope, there you go. <laughs> and so, instead of getting a C for condemned or a B for morally objectionable in part for all, the Catholics rated it A4. Morally unobjectionable objectionable for adults with reservations. And then the production code with uh, Jeffrey Sherlock, he wanted to condemn it and basically the uh, Jack Valenti overruled him. This was one of two times that uh, Jack boo boo. Boom boom uh, Jack Valenti. <laughs> but, but who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and later that year blow up yeah. are the reasons that the uh, rating system was pr- produced because Right. They had right. To do it. right. If I remember right, Bonnie and Clyde got a condemned from the, that board. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go see it anyway. Oh yeah. I was in seventh grade. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Uh, I was I, too. Uh, but supposedly, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Got a uh, no children under seventeen admitted. I saw it when it came out with my dad. Yeah. Oddly enough, and um, I loved it. And that's when I realized I really do like movies because there's obviously something crazy well, yeah, about me. Because it's, it's, it's a movie. There's no doubt. And the acting is brilliant. Yeah. And the, uh, no, there's nothing stage bound about no. it. No. Exactly. It doesn't you feel that way. No, it was based on a play. Most filmed plays, you can tell they're based on yeah. a play. If you didn't know that this was based on a play, you, you, you'd, you'd never you'd suspect never know. it. You'd never know. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and I think I think also uh, people listening to us who haven't seen it, they should... No, HBO Max. It's a lot of humor in it. Oh, God, it's a funny I mean, very, play. very, very, very oh, short. Oh, it was one dark. of the wittiest American playwrights yeah. lived. So it's on HBO Max. Great movie, and that's it. That's no, it. there we go. All right, I so I, I have I have a, a rather obvious choice, but it's been so influential upon my um, my film going. First of all, you know, I take you back to... I remember that some, some films made such an impression on me that I remember the day I saw them. So October 15th, 1986, at the Fine Arts Theater in Chicago, oh. I, went, I went to see the new David Lynch film. And for me, Blue Velvet completely saved American film. American film in the 80s was headed down a producer-directed toilet. Yeah. And, and to me, and, and all of a sudden, boom, there's hope and there's life again. And then I remembered, well, of course it's going to be Lynch because, I mean, he had, before that he had done Dune as the price for doing Blue Velvet. And of course he had been picked up by uh, Mel Brooks's, by Brooks Films to do Elephant Man, which he did a wonderful and very underrated job on. And then of course oh, it's... It wasn't uh, underrated, uh... He got it. He got nominated, didn't he? Yeah, it was yeah. up for several awards, including best director. But it's not a Lynch. It's not a Lynch film, you know. Yeah, because it's sense. based on the play. Yeah, and it's... and the and I remembered that of course it's going to be Lynch because Lynch's first film is possibly the greatest. It's the most auteurist film ever made. 
uh, in the sense that it is a movie that welcomes you inside the director's brain, says, here's what's happening. It's not going to make sense. It's kind of weird. I'm kind of going more for a feeling and a tone than a story. And if you love it, awesome. And if you don't, I totally get it. And that, of course, was Eraserhead. And Eraserhead is one of the 10, 20 films in American history where you can confidently stand up and say there's absolutely nothing like it yeah. in, in the rest of American film. I saw it as I'm really a, glad you chose this movie because I was thinking about doing it and it's like, and then you, you said you wanted to do it. It was like, okay, good. Some, I, at least one of us is going to do it because I really like it a lot. I saw it as a mid, midnight movie in 79 or 80. Oh, well, showing know, in all the time in the city yep. midnight movies. Yep, because it had been released very in a very, very limited way. He had spent four years in the Philadelphia School of the Arts making the film. Um, the filmmaking is in Eraserhead is miraculous. It manages to be so many things at once. It is terrifying. I mean, there are scenes that are pure Freudian unconscious terror. Yeah. There are scenes that are absent. And you know, there's the thing that I love about Lynch because it's your standard, John. I mean, Lynch is a filmmaker who seems to take himself very seriously. You know, who else would have the guts to say, "Here's what's in my head, love it or, or screw you," but always humor. Yeah. You know, I just think of, you know, the Blue Velvet, you know, yes, Jeffrey, that is a human ear. I mean, that very, very <laughs> dry, you know, and that's in Wild at Heart, and that's in, in Mulholland, and it's in, uh, it's in all of his films. And well, so he uh, always did this thing with juxtaposing idyllic Americana with this very, very and, dark side. Right, and put him, tried to put them together, or, you know, how they would clash. The opening of Blue Velvet again. I mean, it's, it's Lumberton. I mean, you know, Eraserhead is set in some sort of industrial place somewhere Nightmare. possibly in this galaxy and we don't know but i mean it is as surreal and i use that yeah. you you, you use the word surrealist. it's very surreal you yeah. use the word juxtaposition john and that's what surrealism is yeah. like magritte it's taking images that usually don't yeah. belong together that only show up together well, i'm sure in your he dreams. watched andalusian dog a hundred times before so Absolutely, but he, I think it was Pauline Kael who referred to him as the first populist surrealist. Um, because it is much more accessible. There are things you can hang on to in the story, and the story doesn't really matter. It's about Henry and uh, Mary X, his girlfriend, and they have. This is they it's have, about what, his fear, his fear of becoming a parent. Right. And it's also based on Lynch's fear of his neighborhood in Philadelphia that he was living in when yeah. he was making this. But. He, he pulls. They filmed. They filmed it in northern, someplace in northern California. Yeah, was, I mean. Yeah, believe it or not. And, oh, I didn't uh, know that. And it reminds me of Hitchcock and Herman working on the birds. I mean, he and Alan Splett, his 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 associate, yeah. spent a year just working on not the music but the soundscape. The sound, uh, yeah. I mean, the amazing. sound. The, the, it's just. It's still. I mean, the film is forty five years old, and it still shocks and appalls. And you laugh at it, and you're you're disturbed by it, and you don't quite mm -hmm. know why. I mean, so many so many great moments. The lady in the radiator, who, <laughs> who ultimately, you know, who ultimately ends up singing in heaven, everything is fine. Yeah. You know, which is such a Lynch thing. Well, also, the the shape of yeah, her the head, they make her the, look like a Bitty Boop type character. Oh my god! <laughs> the the for, the scene you always talk about, John. The the, for the you know going to meet Mary's parents and. Um, 
uh, and, you know, he cuts into the chicken, and the chicken starts moving and starts to bleed, and, you know, the grandmother's sitting there with a cigarette in her mouth, and, you know, can is sort of comatose, yeah. and it's just, I don't, you know, you know, every time I see it, it's like, I don't know why I'm loving this, but it's just hitting me somewhere where I live that I don't even understand. Well, also, of course, there's the pencil factory. <laughs> oh, there's the, pen, the pencil factory, and, you know, and... If you if you watch closely in Eraserhead, all like for example, the theme of stage and performance is always very big in Lynch. Think of the Club Silencio scene in Mulholland Drive, or Dorothy Valen singing uh, on stage, or yeah. Blue Velvet, or even uh, Dean Stockwell, um, you know, uh, lip syncing yeah. uh, in, in Dreams, yeah. which is possibly the best scene in Blue Velvet. But I mean that the, all all of the major Lynch themes are there. And as you say, I mean, it, the one thing that's not there is the small town thing. I mean, the opening of Blue Velvet with the firemen and the and then well, you know, it is it is in his room in a way. Yeah. Again, that juxtaposition. I mean, because like he's, we don't really know, you know, how much money he makes, but obviously not much. And he's and it's sort of like in that really dingy, awful oh, little apartment with the the blanket with all the holes. Which at first, you know, it's funny because the first time I, I was seeing that, I thought it was. Well, he must have a lot of big moths in there. But there's a there's a moment where you see him on. He's very anxious and he's picking. Yeah. At the blanket, you know, like the holes are from him. <laughs> and, and you know. And, and but you but next on the night table, there's the branch stuck in the the mound of dirt. Yeah, and it's without like, a well, pot. Well, not a pot. There's not a plant. It's like, okay, like you're trying to make a so-called home, but <laughs> you just stick a branch in a pile of dirt. And they have. And the they, what the, the line is from the hospital is like they're 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 not sure it's a baby, <laughs> and but the poor baby or whatever it is is just nonstop crying. So Mary leaves and he tries and he that's another classic Lynch line when he sees it's like covered in scabs and he's like, oh, you are sick, you know. So just that Lynchian understatement. Your students. You show it to your students? Yes. And they like it? They like, uh, Scenes from it, not the whole thing. Ah, I don't know if they like the whole thing. Yeah, because I've, I've recommended it to a couple of my younger friends and they don't like it. It's it's a haul. It's, well, it, it's, yeah. it's it, again, well, also, it is... Also, I mean, some of it is is, is a little slow. He, he yes. takes his time. Yeah. He has long takes. And a lot of younger people just, they cannot deal with that. Yeah. But the, the technical wizardry is just... I mean, for 1973, how did he do the scenes with the baby? It's, it's supposedly it's stop motion well, the, animation. The, I know but the rumor is that it's it was a skinned rabbit, I, but I, still, I don't know how they did it. It's just and in the end, when when something bad happens to the baby, I won't tell you. I mean, you end up feeling terrible for this, but. Well, do you? It's, it's, I, do. I did. I did. No, but I mean, well, at the end, it's you get the sense that he's being devoured. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, and it, it's just, it's all your unconscious, his unconscious fears his fear about, takes him over. about parenthood, about marriage, about living where he was living, about the life of an artist. But to me, my last word on it is that that is what separates David Lynch from almost every other director we've talked about in the other 40 episodes. We have focused on directors who, because of their vision and genius, happen to be artists. With Lynch, it's the opposite. Yeah. Lynch is yes. an artist who happens to be a director. Yeah. Because he is a successful composer, he's had exhibits nationally, 
photographer, designer. Um, he now goes around giving lectures about uh, transcendental meditation. He hasn't done a film in 15 years, and Inland, em Inland Empire kind of felt like uh, someone doing a David Lynch imitation. A bad but, one. Well, he did that. Sorry. He also did that Twin Peaks. Yeah, no, Inland Empire is terrible. On, uh, right, he did on, the. It was on Showtime. Which I didn't even watch. I, I tried. I, no. I, the first. It, yeah, I stuck with it for a while and gave up. It just, it just didn't all work. No, but it, I went all the way to the end. And it's just like, and I remember when I got to the end, it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I know. That's I can't. How I you're better than this. Lynch is, is is emblematic of the of the highs and the lows of the auteur theory because you can yeah. just as easily watch Eraserhead or Blue Velvet or Mulholland and say, why do those I, are three of the, three of the best films of the last right? But you could easily look at those century. and say, why do I care yeah. what's happening inside your head? How how egocentric of you to think that I would care about that? And yet. I find in watching Lynch, and I have from the beginning, that there is something absolutely universal in something he taps into that is just, that gets me every time. Even in his lesser films, like, say, Lost Highway or uh, the Twin Peaks movie, Fire Walk With Me, there are some Never really good scenes it. in there. I, I was always told to stay away from it if I really liked Twin Peaks. So, yeah. So, David Lynch, the artist who happens to be a director, and my favorite first film, Eraserhead. Anyway, I'm so glad that you picked it, so... I'm next. So, okay. <laughs> my my final movie is 12 Angry Men, 1957, directed by Sidney Lamette. Uh, screenplay by Reginald Rose, based on his original teleplay, and was originally done live on CBS in 1954. It was directed by Franklin Schaffner. Oh. Yes. Uh, just so we get sort of a, an idea of Lamette's long career, he went on to direct The Fugitive Kind, one of the best Tennessee Williams adaptations, Long Day's Journey Tonight, still the best, yep. the best version of that play. The Pawn Broker, Fail Safe, The Hill, The Deadly Affair, okay. Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, Prince of the City, Death Trap, The Verdict, Daniel, Running on Empty, Family Business, and his last movie, Before the Devil Hell Knows You're Dead. dead Forgotten Network. Yep. And Network, of course, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's a career. Yeah. What a career. Yeah, and not only naming, I mean, there's a lot of other oh, movies yeah. I'm not naming. But boy, he was, he just worked nonstop. Yeah, and... And, and unobtrusively, he's a non-auteur yeah. director. Well, I mean, I, I would say the general theme going through all his, all his movies is this, his concern with the social issues and social justice, especially in urban areas. Um, he was Check. originally from Philadelphia. That's where he was born, grew up in New York City, and so many of his movies are centered in New York City. As is this movie. So, the 12 jurors are Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, mm -hmm. Martin Balsam, John Fiedler, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Edward Binns, Jack Warden, <sighs> Joseph McCardle, Ed Begley, George Vaskovec, and Robert Weber. Who? Yeah, <laughs> they are the jurors I in a murder trial, that, which, which appears no, at I first to be an open and shut case because there is so much circumstantial evidence against the defendant. But one juror, of course, it's Henry Fonda, votes Number not nine. guilty and insists they go over all of the evidence again. And one by one, they begin to question the evidence and what the witnesses said. And after that, we pretty much know what's going to happen, but we want to stay with it because it's just, it's so compelling how they learn and, and start to question different things. And also because it's Henry Fonda. We know he's going to win out in the end. 
But uh, the thing I love so much about this movie, and it's not stagey at all, even though it all miraculous. Takes, it's all one room, all one yep. room, and it's How very do you make that interesting. Like, like the It's yeah. very cinematic, mm-hmm. and the acting in is is great because it's Sidney Lumet because he was so good with actors. He rehearsed with actors, ah. which was unusual for films. Right. That was uh, I meant to point that out in Virginia Woolf. Elizabeth Taylor had never had. They had three weeks rehearsal. She'd never rehearsed. Yeah, in her I movies. believe it. I believe it. You know, and they believe. And it. it's just such a joy watching all <coughs> of the actors. It's like an encyclopedia of acting of of the era. Yep. All well written characters. So if you haven't seen it, oh, you gotta see it. It's glorious. Where can you? Uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Up. Okay, good. Yeah, and yeah. it shows People every once in a while. Turn Turner, yeah. It's one of those films that if you're ter- running across the channels and you run into it, you have to watch the movie. Yeah. And no, I always and it's do. Funny, yeah. And it's funny because every once in a while it pops up when I don't know what's on and all of a sudden I'm very in. involved. Even yep. though I've seen it so many times, I know what's going to happen. I can almost say the lines, but I just I stay with it because it's so so compelling. Yeah, and John, I think that's a great point. I never thought about the connection of Lumet's... Uh, the, the the through line being maybe social consciousness and sort of very an much so. environment yeah, yeah that yeah. makes a lot of sense yeah. so yeah and if you know most people have seen it most people still read it in middle school it's still a commonly read play and then they'll often show the oh. film but so, really yeah, good yay. that's good to hear yeah. all right so there you have it my friends uh, gala premieres our favorite first films aside from a whole bunch of exceptions uh, and uh, we move on now. Uh, to the inevitable necrology, and uh, we've lost a few people in the last... Yeah, uh, 11. Mm. Yeah, well, I I get to do the last one, which is the hardest one. Okay, I'm going to start here. Marsha Hunt, 104. Are you from... Were you at all familiar with her? No, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. I wasn't... I always heard the name, but I didn't... And I knew she was connected with the blacklist, but I didn't know a lot about her. She was pretty much the last of the 30s film actresses. She appeared in 50 movies under contract with both Paramount and MGM. And between 1935 and 1949, she did, uh, among her movies were Pride and Prejudice, The Human Comedy, and Cry Havoc. Hmm. But, and she always worked, but uh, uh, she then traveled to Washington as part of the committee for the First Amendment to protest the Red Scare and the House of Un-American Activities, along with Humphrey Bogart, John Houston, and others. Yeah. Afterwards, many on the committee, under pressure, called it ill-advised, which led her to being blacklisted. She was given several chances to sign a paper saying she was a communist dupe, but she absolutely refused, leading her to be listed in red channels. She did appear on Broadway several times, including Shaw's Devil's Disciple, but few film or TV offers came her way, so she became an active supporter of the United Nations and wrote and produced A Call from the Stars, a 1960 TV documentary about the plight of refugees. She also became an activist for the homeless. She worked with George McGovern in the Kennedy administration on anti-hunger legislation. She did appear in the 60s through the late 80s in episodic TV shows such as Star Trek The Next Generation, Murder, She Wrote, and The Twilight Zone, and she was featured in Dalton Trumbo's Johnny Got His Gun in 1971 as uh, uh, Timothy Bottoms' mother. mother. She act until, acted until 2008 where she appeared at age 90 
in a short film called The Grand Inquisitor, which was written and directed by TCM host Eddie Muller. She was made an honorary mayor of uh, Sherman Oaks, California, and with that title, she was influential in converting hotels into safe dwellings for the homeless. She was the subject of a 2015 documentary called Marsha Hunt's Sweet Adversity, which I watched last week on TCM. Mm. And last year, in an interview, she defended celebrities speaking out on political issues. When injustice occurs, go on with your convictions. Giving in and being silent is what they want you to do. Uh, after watching this documentary, here, here. fascinating woman. Okay, Irene Pepes, mm. Greek and stage actress. Uh, she made her film debut in 1948 in Greece, but was championed by Elia Kazan, and she received a seven-year contract with MGM, but made only one film under that contract, Tribute with, to a Bad Man, with James Cagney. Mm. Her breakout role was in The Guns of Navarone with Gregory Peck and Anthony sure. Quinn. And although she made subsequent films in Hollywood, such as The Brotherhood, Bloodline, The Moon Spinners, and Anne of a Thousand Days, she also continued working in Greece and other European countries. Her best-known film was Zorba the Greek as the town's widow. Other films in Greece were Electra, Antigone, both title roles, Z, Iphigenia, and most noteworthy, The Trojan Women, which was directed by Michael Kalionis. She won the National Board of Review Award for Best Actress portraying Helen of Troy. And this film, little unknown film, but I love it. Also co-starred Catherine Hepburn, Vanessa Redgrave, and Jean-Vierre Bougeot. Not bad. On Broadway, she appeared in Medea, my first Medea on stage, <clears throat> and The Bacchae. One of her last films was in 2001, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, where Oop. she played Christian Bale's mother. Henry Silva, 95. Actor, often ah. played menacing villains, was a member of the actor's studio and appeared on Broadway in A Hatful of Rain as Mother, a drug pusher, a role he repeated in the 1957 film. Other film roles included The Tall Tea with Randolph Scott, The Law and Jake Wade with Robert Taylor, Green Mansions with Audrey Hepburn, the original Ocean's Eleven, the title role of Johnny Cool, one of his few leading roles, mm. Sergeant's Three, Dick Tracy, Sharky's Machine, Gathering of Eagles, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, <laughs> Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, Garmish. and to me, his signature role was in Chunchun in The Manchurian, Manchurian Candidate. Candidate. Although he was half Italian and uh, 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 half Hispanic, he often played different minorities, including a stint as a Native American on an episode of TV Daniel, TV's Daniel Boone. From 1966 to 1977, he starred in 25 films in Italy, again playing the villain, including wow. The Italian Connection, The Boss, and Almost Human. Human. His final screen appearance was in Steven Soderbergh's remake of Ocean's Eleven in 2001. Busy guy. Yeah, very, very busy. Great face. Eileen Tanner, Swiss film director, was founder of the so-called Group of Five norm-shattering Swiss directors who helped drive a new form of national cinema. His best-known films tended toward the stark neorealism, laced with incisive dialogue and an errant wit, and often centered on characters struggling against conformity. In the 1970s, his best-known work included A Flame in My Heart and The Salamander. His first film was Charles Didden Alive, which was conceived in the wake of the 1968 student protest that had swept Europe. 
It centered on a prosperous Swiss watchmaker who abandoned his fam family business, assumed a name, and settled into the life on the fringes of society with a young couple. His most popular film in the U.S. was Jonah, who will be 25 in the year 2000, which, was, which focused on disillusioned friend in Geneva. That film, co-written by John Berger, won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Screenplay of 1976, beating out other popular favorites such as Network, Taxi Driver, and Seven Beauties. Hmm. Louise Fletcher. Oh, my. 88, actress. Known for her Oscar-winning performance as Nurse Ratched in Milos Foreman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Her earlier work consisted of television appearances in the 1950s and early 1960s, mostly westerns because at 5'10", she was considered tall for a woman. She appeared in one movie, A Gathering of Eagles, which co-starred Henry Silva, <laughs> and then retired in 1963 to raise her children. She returned to acting in 1974, Robert Altman's Altman. Thieves Like Us. Yep. Altman was a friend of Fletcher's husband, producer Jerry Bick. Foreman saw the film and was impressed with her performance. Also, Foreman was finding it difficult to cast Nurse Ratched, having been turned down by Anne Bancroft, Ellen Burstyn, Angela Lansbury, Colleen Dewhurst, Jane Fonda, Geraldine Page, and Kim Stanley. Wow. So Foreman went with the unknown film, with the unknown Fletcher, and Cuckoo's Nest became the only second of three films to sweep the Oscars. She went on to play mostly supporting roles in both television and films, including Flowers in the Attic, Exorcist II, The Heretic, Firestarter, The Cheap Detective, and most memorably, Douglas Trumbull's uh, Brainstorm. The role of the lawyer's wife in Nashville was based on Fletcher. In real life, Fletcher's parents were both deaf. The role right. went to Lily Tomlin, but Fletcher always insisted that Altman had promised that role to her and they had a falling out. She later, later though, though, did a cameo wrote, along with Rest of Hollywood in The Player. Right. And i got to put a little editorial in here. I always thought one of the problems with Cuckoo's Nest was that, to me, Nurse Ratchet came off more uh, as a overzealous social worker than as truly evil. I, I didn't find know, her that evil. Because, you know, and I have to uh, represent the Star Trek community here because mm -hmm. she played, and my favorite of the series, as frequent listeners know, is Deep Space Nine, and she played a hypocritical religious leader um, and was so brilliant nonstop for seven years. She put, always putting on this very friendly, happy, warm face and just these evil machinations mm. right below the surface. And it's just a, it was one of the many performances in that she, series. I thought that she was good in Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. I just frankly wish one of the other actresses had gotten a role I would have liked to have seen what, are, what they would have brought to the... All right. They, so. they probably just didn't want to play it. No. Just, yeah. They just, they just didn't. Yeah. Uh, uh, um... Burston and um, I think Burston and Bancroft even said they don't like they did not like the material. Yeah. Charles Fuller, playwright, won the Pulitzer Prize for his Soldier's Play, which was adapted and renamed a Soldier's Story in 1984. The film, directed by Norman Jewson, received three Academy Award nominations, including a nomination for Fuller's screenplay. He uh, lost it to Peter Schaffer in his screenplay for Amadeus. In 2020, Soldier's Play finally made it to Broadway where it won a Tony Award for Fuller for Best Revival of the Play. The original production ran off-Broadway for a year. Mm. Sasheen Littlefeather, 75. <laughs> Apache activist and actress. She famously refused the Best Actor Award for, 
for The Godfather on behalf of Marlon Brando at the 1973 Oscars, drawing jeers on stage in an act that underscored her criticism of Hollywood's depiction of Native Americans. Her acting career began in the early 1970s at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, and she did appear in a few films, such as The Trial of Billy Jack and Winterhawk. She met Brando through her neighbor, Francis Ford Coppola, and it was Brando's idea for her to appear at the Oscars to refuse the award, and he wrote the speech for her. In the speech, she brought attention to the federal government's standoff with the protesting Native Americans, then going on at Wounded Knee. She recalled that uh, while giving the speech, she never finished it, she had focused on the mouths and jaws that were dropping open in the audience, and there were quite a few. Very white audience. She said that some members of the audience did uh, the so-called tomahawk tomahawk chop at her. And supposedly John Wayne, who was backstage, had to be physically restrained from attacking her. That part of the story has always been kind of iffy. Sounds apocryphal. Later, there were reports in the media that she was a phony, that she wasn't an activist, but a pole dancer and a stripper. (sighs) Only a month before her death, she was invited back to the academy where she was formally apologized, and there was a formal evening with her. One month before she died. Well. Yeah. Michael Collin, 86, stage, TV, and film actor. Featured on Broadway in, a, in The Boyfriend, and in, which starred Julie Andrews, and then originated the role of Biff in West Side Story. He received mm. a contract with Columbia and was featured in They Came to Cordra with Gary Cooper, Gitche Goes Hawaiian, The Interns, and the sequel The New Interns, The Victors, and most famously, Cat Ballou. He starred in the sitcom Occasional Wife in 1966, which only lasted one year. He then appeared in many TV programs over the years, including The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Police Story, Charlie's Angels, T.J. Hooker, One Life to Live, and Murder, She Wrote, in four different characters and four different episodes. Lovely. One of his final films was Stuck on You for the Farley Brothers. Mm. Robbie Coltrane. Oh, Hagrid. <laughs> Appeared in over a hundred movies and TV programs, most wow. famously in the TV program Crackers, where he won three BAFTA awards for Best Actor, and as Hagrid in all of the Harry Potter films. Other films included The Pope Must Diet, Mona Lisa, Eat the Rich, Absolute Beginners, Defense of the Realm, Burt Rigby, You're a Fool, Kenneth Branagh's film of Henry V, where he played Falstaff, right. Nuns on the Run, Golden Eye, and The World is Not Enough, where he portrayed Vladimir Zolvinsky, a KGB man turned St. Petersburg Mafia. Uh, Message in a Bottle, Van Helsing, Ocean's Twelve, and Great Expectations, the Mike Newell 2012. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sure enough. This is the last one I'm doing. Dame Angela Lansbury. Dame she was. She made her film debut at 18 when she played the maid Nancy in George Cukor's Gaslight. Amazing. Winning her first Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Her second film was as Elizabeth Taylor's elder sister in National Velvet. And her third film was in The Picture of Dorian Gray, in which she won her second Oscar nomination at age 19 (laughs) and a Golden Globe Award. She worked consistently in the 40s through the mid-1960s, always as a supporting actor. Actors. Her highlights in her career included State of the Union, The Harvey Girls, Samson and Delilah, The Courtchester, The Long Hot Summer, The Reluctant Debutante, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, All Fall Down, The World of Henry Orient, 
and the Manchurian Candidate, where she won her final Oscar nomination, a Golden Globe Award, and the National Board of Review for Best Supporting Actress. Although she appeared three times on Broadway in the, early, in the 50s and early 60s, she became a star in the musical Mame, where she won her first of five Tony Awards. <laughs> she continued to work occasionally in movies, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, one of her first leading roles, and Death on the Nile, where she won the National Board of Review Award for Best Supporting Actress. After winning her fourth Tony Award for Sweeney Todd, she went into television, where she played a mystery writer turned amateur detective in Murder, She Wrote, which ran 12 years, and another four TV movies where where she played the same character. After it was canceled, she returned to Broadway and appeared in four more plays, including Blythe Spirit, in which she won her fifth Tony Award. (laughs) She continued to work in films, most notably, I don't know if you guys have seen this film, at age 82, Colin Firth's Evil Aunt Adelaide and Nanny McPhee. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. She's amazing. At age 89, she finally won an honorary Oscar for her, not her lifetime of work. And she continued working in the films in the 1990s. I gotta say a couple things about her. Well, first I of all, she's Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. Hello. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I saw her three years ago in a staged reading of the Chalk Garden, at, mm-hmm. it was a, uh, which she had hoped to do as a play, and I guess she she wasn't up to it because she was coming out on stage frail. But uh, she had the lead in this, and I just thought to myself, and she had to have been 93, 94, God, this woman loves to act. Hmm? I saw her in Night Music on stage. Yeah, she plays the mother. Great, which, you know, with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Great, she was amazing. Great, um, and as you know, she became a very, very wealthy woman uh, with Murder She Wrote. I, I just got to relate one story. There was this actress. You, you must know who she is, Madeline Rue, because she was on. Uh, I, I, I know. She yeah, she was on the Star Trek with uh, Ricardo Montalban. She played Lieutenant Barnes. Oh, okay. Yeah. In the space seat, yeah. Yeah, and she did a lot of movies. She was Spencer Tracy's assistant in It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. And, of course, among her many TV shows, she did um, uh, an episode of Murder, she wrote. And then she developed, seriously, MS. And she became confined to, the wheel, to a wheelchair. And my wonderful union, Screen Actors Guild, I'm saying that sarcastically, uh, had a rule that if you don't work for a certain amount of years, you're cut off of health insurance. And she had not made it to the point where she could get Medicare. She would have to go on Medicaid, and she needed a lot of care. So Lansbury hires her as the Cabot Cove librarian for one episode for four consecutive years, shooting her from the neck up. So you couldn't tell how ill she was. And she could get a house insurance. Yeah, that sounds about right. Is that a mensch? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Wow. It's also just amazing how she just continued to reinvent mm-hmm. her career too, yeah. as as an actress. Yeah, she had her films. Yeah. And she was basically she went at I, I reading in the obituaries. I didn't realize how hard she had to do to get Mame. She auditioned. Uh-huh. Numerous times. Interesting. And they, uh, other actresses had turned it down. She really, really wanted it. And, and Mame did kind of make her a semi-name, but she still 
I think I said before when we were talking about her in our episode 34B, where I named her the best performance of supporting, supporting actress of all time in The Manchurian Candidate, which I'll, I, I don't think I'll ever change that opinion. She's just so brilliant. And anybody who listens to this podcast who has not seen The Manchurian Candidate, now. see it. Stop, turn us off, go now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, she not had the to... remake, not the Demi remake. No, Boo. no, no, no. But she had to fight for Mame, and then even when she did, wanted to do television, she was the second choice yeah. for Murder She Wrote. She's Mrs. Lovett. She's always Mrs. Lovett to me because I and, have to see that production. And the actually, original Sweeney. Sweeney Todd is you can get it streaming. I forget Someone where. Someone filmed the original. Yeah, or it was on tour with George Hearn because right. Len Carey, whose voice had been. Uh, had gone by then, but uh, and it's not as good as seeing it on stage, but it is one of the great musical yeah. comedy performances. One of the things mm. that made me love all time. Yeah, yeah. I, saw uh, it when I was fourteen, and, and so. I yeah. I, uh, so anyway, I'm, and I'm, one and so okay. thank you, Michael. And one last and the big one. You know, no respect to Angela Lansbury, but we uh, we have lost the French New Wave is now officially gone with the passing at his own. You know, he always did everything his own way, of course. Uh, of Jean-Luc Godard, um, who uh, died by uh, essentially assisted suicide because you know he was sick and did not want to, con- and of course that's exactly what he would do. I, I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that Godard is like what Picasso is to painting because there is a line, there is film before Godard and there is film after Godard because Godard essentially invents postmodern film for better or worse and a lot of people think for worse because it's it's a it's it seems self-indulgent sometimes it feels that way but for Godard every film he ever made was about one thing and one thing only film I mean it was he was the first recursive director he was the first filmmaker making films about films and filmmaking and just absolutely revolutionary and I mentioned when I was talking about Sturgis that he had that run from uh, that that he had that run from Breathless in '60 to uh, Weekend in '67. That is, for my money, absolutely unmatched. It's just an explosion of creativity. I mean, you have masterpieces like like those two, uh, like uh, Vive Sa Vie, which is just ridiculously amazing. Uh, Le Mépris, Contempt, Band Apart, which I happen to love. Alphaville, which has grown in everyone's check. Pierre Le Fou, which is a flippin' masterpiece. Uh, masculine feminine, which I like just as much as any of the other ones, and weekend. But even the ones that are not on that list, like Petit Soldat, like Le Carabinier, like uh, Married Woman, Made in USA, La Chinoise, two or three things that I know about her. They're all just, just, uh, just so daring and so cutting edge. And there's, you look at those films and you're like, wow, you can do this with film. And it, they're they just absolutely. Revolution. Richard Brody, who writes for The New Yorker, who I don't love as a critic, but wrote a wonderful book about Godard called Everything is Cinema. And that's what it was, his entire life, his entire existence. He lived, breathed, and ate film, and film was never the same after he got his hands on it. Some people think that's a bad thing because they just want a story told simply and straight from beginning to end. But if, you, if you're if you a little more ambitious, if you want to go cubist and don't necessarily need to see little paintings of horses and, and uh, landscapes, then Godard's your person. And, you know, his post... 
Maoist period stuff from Seth. There was some good stuff there, especially Histoire de Cinema, uh, his documentary about compendium, really, of the history of film. Uh, very much worth, worth looking at. But if you really want to get the sense of what Godard could do to people... Uh, read Susan Sontag's essay on him. It's just called Godard. It's collected in her second collection called Styles of Radical Will. And it's just, it's almost as life-changing as Godard himself. So we are a poor, poor place without Jean-Luc Godard here. And remember, guys, you can't spell Godard without G-O-D. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I, I saw a Godard movie last week, which I saw in 1980 that I really liked. Yeah, some I, of the post uh, seventy yeah, stuff. Yeah, but good. he didn't write it. Interesting. Uh, it's uh, Every Man for Himself. Yes. And I remember liking it, and it was uh, playing at Film Forum last week, not as part of Godard, but as part of the Isabelle Huppert. Right, Isabelle Huppert. Yeah. And I remember that was the first Godard movie that I really, I mean, I hadn't seen that many. I'd seen a couple, but I, I really I, liked I, it. I saw it. No, I remember, I remember liking that. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I think what you said about comparing uh, him to an art movement like Cubism is. Is very accurate because he deconstructed yes. our, our sense of, of or, or what a film is supposed to be. Right, and and, and he would always say it himself, like everything, everything about my life and everything I see in the world, what I view and everything is about is from movies and about movies. I it's mean, like it was his religion. The painting that most reminds me of Godard, and that I love the fact that unlike Tarantino, who is another director yeah. who's the subject of all of Tarantino's films is film. Yeah. And not for nothing did Tarantino name his first production company Band Apart Films. Yeah. He's yes. a Godard fan. But um, is a, a, a Duchamp's New Descending Staircase where you see like the whole process happening all at once. Well, totally yeah, deconstructing. Duchamp is an artist that's, yeah, that's a good comparison. Right. And, and I don't know if anyone's ever going to be able to make that kind of impact and influence and again I, I understand why some people see it as not a positive influence probably not in this country no <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make it a point uh, I'm sure they're going to be doing retrospective of yep. Godard's films because I haven't seen a lot of them I've seen Breathless several times and I like it more and more as I get older, I don't know watch why. everything he did from Breathless to Weekend. There are all fourteen of them are okay. worthwhile, and you know some are stronger than others. But the, the one uh, I remember, Weekend, what a traffic jam! Oh my! <laughs> the goodness. one I remember not liking, and I went to see it only because the Catholics were protesting. It was Hail Mary. Yeah, uh, you know it's. I don't the, know what the hell that movie the, was. The, the King Lear thing, and yeah, I mean he often he often strayed. But my goodness, what! I mean, how many other directors? There are a few, but very few directors can you say there was film before they showed up and then after they showed up. And so, uh, we we his his work will long, long, long outlive him. Uh, Jean Luc Godard dead at ninety one. Time for our quote quiz, John O. Ah, All right, a little so, levity. Last episode's quote, and I'm going to say it twice because it's said twice in the movie that it's from. Which is how I got it, I think. Yes. He'd kill us if he got the chance. Second time you hear it, he'd kill us if he got the chance. Right. That's Frederick Forrest to Cindy Williams in The Conversation, Conversation. 1974, yeah. written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Fabulous. Great movie. The new quote is, I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. Hmm. I know you've both seen it. <laughs> 
Not immediately leaping to mind, but I will I will ponder on it a while. I know people and, are going to criticize me for making my quotes too hard. Well, listen, you know, you don't want to just uh, just just throw candy at them, you know. Yeah. Let's you make them work for it. That's um, right. And uh, please check for the answer to this, another of life's uh, <laughs> heavy questions. Uh, check us out at... Um, uh, at www.vintagesand.com um, We are not sh- exactly sure what our <laughs> November episode is going to be. We are hoping uh, that Sight and Sound will come out with their poll in the in November. So, yeah, and, and I, if they it's do, supposed to come out in November, but right. I don't know when in November. So, Early November, late November. If they it, haven't they haven't informed us when. Nope. Yeah. It is it is when it comes out, and that will obviously be the topic of our conversation. If not, who knows? Maybe we'll do another decade for alter, alternate Oscars, or throw something else in there. We'll come up with something. We'll give the people what they want. Yes. So. Please remember that, as always, Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production. Um, we want to thank Melissa for the technical help, Mama Sue for the use of the hall, Gabby for the ass-kicking logo. Uh, please recall that we are now on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Check out the website, as I mentioned, www.vintagesand.com for uh, information on the episodes, the films we mentioned, and the answer to John's quote quiz, which is killing you. I do. I know it. I can feel it. All right. And um, happy watching. Please be safe. Get out there and vote. We don't care who you vote. Vote 37 times if you can, like McGinty does. But just get out there and vote for whomever you're voting for. Uh, we love you, our happy audience. And we always hope for you, therefore, that your favorite films may always be streaming.